Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 9 of Faithful to the Walk. I am your host, Randy Leonard, and joining us on the show today is our special guest, Sister Anna Marie Blum. We're going to be discussing the topic of worship within the book of Revelation. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, don't forget to like the show and turn on your notifications so that you won't miss any future episode of Faithful to the Walk. And if you haven't already, don't forget to leave us a review because it helps us to see what you want to hear on future episodes and what you have enjoyed so far. So once again, this is episode nine of Faithful to the Walk. Let's dive right in and let's go now. here to another episode, episode nine of Faithful to the Walk. Today I am joined by a really awesome friend by the name of Sister Anna Marie Blum. She's currently a senior here at Hershey College pursuing a bachelor's in Christian ministries. Um, She'll be working towards her license as a local UPCI minister here within the next year. And she's currently working on authoring her first book within her book series titled In Those Days. Sister Anna, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Randy. Absolutely. Well, today we're here and we are going to be having an academic discussion on the book of Revelation, currently focusing on Revelation 4, 6, or verses 6 through 11. Um, it, we, we look and we're currently doing this for our class for yeah. Brother Peter Wright. So Peter, when you listen to this, we love you very much. Look up to you and we honor you today as well. Um, Sister Anna, get us started on what what we've noticed or some of the some of the key points you feel like you've noticed within the book itself. Yeah. So um something that you know that Peter has pointed out throughout the uh, throughout the whole book of Revelation is John's continual pull of the rest of the Bible into Revelation, but he's not as obvious with it, you know, as uh, Paul is within all of his letters to the churches. Um, he's quite subtle about it, but right. in this very, but it's also in a very profound way, um, and we see that through, you know, Revelation four and five, but very specifically through Revelation 4, these verses that we're looking at. Right, and I, I, and I agree with you. You see, you see not only John use a lot of intertextuality from, from Old Testament books such as Ezekiel mm. and Isaiah um, and Zechariah and Obadiah and all the different prophets, as well as Daniel. Um, and you, you see very much so that while, while John is giving all these different things intertextually, he's also relaying that theme intertextually as well. I don't, yes. And we, we've we talked before, and I wouldn't even say intertextually is a quote-unquote real term, but I'm going to make <laughs> it up for this because it's, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's, a true, it's a true fact, though, because John 
relays many multiple themes, but today we're really focusing on that specific theme of worship that you see. And so, um, you know, through through the different type of research and such, um, you see people argue from from people like uh, Craig Kester, who we've read his book, Revelation, yes. The End of All Things, during this semester. And his argument is that John takes this, um, this circular approach of he gives the part of the story, and then he tells the same story again, but adds more detail right. over and over again. So talk to us a little bit right. about that as well. So I know that there, um, you know, we've talked about this in class. We've talked with... Um, Brother David Norris and with uh, Peter Wright, that there are not a lot of people agree with Kester's view of this right. this outline of Revelation. But I I quite enjoy it. I think it's the best way to describe it because in this circular motion, it's Peter has described it as um, you know John will go and take a closer look at a theme or at a specific part within Revelation but then he'll kind of zoom out and maybe look at the bigger picture and then focus on another part. Um, it can be quite confusing once you're reading it, but having that kind of outline in mind, right. it almost, you can start to put together all of the pieces as they go. Right, absolutely. Um, and that, that brings us now to Revelation, and you, and you, look, in, you look within that chapter, of chapter 4, and you see that John is entered into the throne room of God. This is yes. his first time we've seen in the previous three chapters that he's addressing the churches within the Asia Minor. Mm. But now John is now taking God, the Spirit of the Lord has brought him up into heaven. He's standing, there's an open door, and a voice calls him to come up and come here and I'll show you what's going to take place after this. Right. And um. so he was caught up in the Spirit, behold a throne, stood in heaven. If you're reading this, this is Revelation 4.2. We're reading in the ESV. Now, once I was in the spirit, behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And about the, and around the throne, there was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. And you see within this that the throne had, tw- that around the throne were 24 elders and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and gold. And then you see these four living creatures. And th- this is really a callback from Ezekiel 1 and 10. When Ezekiel sees a living creature that had the face of a lion, the face of an ox, or, or looked like a lion, looked like an ox, right. had the face of a man, and had, was a, an eagle in flight as well. Yeah. And what was really cool was you, you see in the discussion, um, I believe Robert Mounts talks about this, in the uh, new uh, new international commentary on the New Testament, and Peter even brings it up, but all the throne is. Peter would even say that the throne is in the center of the throne is in the center of heaven, and everything else is pointed inwardly to that. Yeah, it's with that. It's showing the centrality of worship, not only just in this scene, but it's showing that. Everything in our universe, because as we go through, you know, chapters four and five, it keeps it goes from just these four living creatures to the elders to um, the world and then to the universe, and it all points worship back to the Lord. It's this um, beautiful pointing back right to Jesus and it's, pointing back to worship of God. And 
and I, I find it super cool as well. Um, I believe it, it was Kester as well in, in his commentary here on Revelation that he talks about how you see how the ox is the head of all domestic animals, the eagle's the head of all bird, winged birds, mm-hmm. the lion is the head of all wild beasts, and the man is the head of all um, of all living creatures. But yet God's given each of them dominion and you see how while God's given them each of them dominion and he's given each of them, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, You're looking for authority? Look, given them a, a form of authority, all of them are bowed here in the end yeah. to who he is, honoring him in reverence. Um, and what is super cool is each of these creatures... This is Revelation 4 and 8. It's they, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And what is super cool is this is really a John pulling from his gospel. And even, and even from Paul's writing as well, when he says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow yes. and every tongue will confess. Because what is awesome here is not only... Is this a, a reference here to Isaiah as well when it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. But John adds something here that is super cool that is not only intertextual, but it's intratextual as well. Yes. And he says, who was and is and is to come. And that's really a callback to, to his gospel when he says, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except that he come through me. Right. Um, you know, and with this, it's, well, the song, the holy, 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 it is a straight pull from Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. Um, you know, this is the same song that Isaiah heard in his temple vision, which was beautiful, but that's, it's that change. You know, um, I believe it was, uh, Lewis Brighton in the, uh, Revelation Concordia commentary who said that, um... You know, that's the same song. He's hearing the same thing, but it's that difference where Isaiah heard of the glory of God. Um, John is hearing this, who was and is and is to come, um, saying we're not only worshiping God because he exists, because he's there, but it's it's calling back to who who he is and what he has done for us. It's, you know, he was the God who created. He is the God who came down and sacrifice his life on the cross for us and he is is the God who will come back for his church in the end so that we can be with him worshiping him for all of eternity absolutely um so when you when you look at this when you look at this scene not only from you know while while yes a lot of it's very symbolic when you're looking and viewing this scene this, just this specific part in eight from an academic standpoint, how how is that applicable to an academic standpoint to those who would say who would argue for any any other discussion within within the, the world of Christendom? Well, so as you said, you mentioned Ezekiel right. at the very beginning. Um, when looking at at this, these winged creatures, they're both mentioned in Ezekiel and in Isaiah, and like I had said said earlier the vision the vision that John sees is it's much it's more similar to what Isaiah saw mm-hmm. in the temple 
Um, and Isaiah, he calls these, these winged creatures, the four living creatures, he identifies them as seraphim. And that'd be in Isaiah 6-2 for those who are going along. And both Isaiah and John, specifically to eight, this hymn that we're hearing, they're hearing this hymn, uh, and it would be called a, a Te Deum. Mm-hmm. Um, and this holy, 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 the this triple repetition, and you see it mostly in um, ancient Near Eastern mm-hmm. culture, and is to place emphasis um, to say it three times. So it is emphasizing right. just how holy this God is that they are worshiping, that they are seeing. Um, so that is what Isaiah and John are identifying, mm-hmm. is this very holy God that is coming in. Um, and I, I find it very cool as well, like when you when you view when you view these different groups, um, Kester would identify these groups of people. Um, he says in his commentary, the New Jerusalem has gates named for 12 tribes and foundations named for 12 apostles. Mm. So the 24 elders could signify both of these groups. Yes, they could. And this is possible because it was typical for Israelite tribes to be identified by a singular elder. And he pulls that from R.A. Campbell and such. And he says, early Christians distinguished apostles from elders and is not clear why the two groups together would be called elders. And he goes through this whole rundown of uh, priestly, priestly groups and uh, the 24 groups of priests and the Levitical. So there's just, there's different opinions. And that's what I love about uh, Kester's commentary here is not, yes, he takes his side of the argument, but he displays all arguments on deck, which right. is amazing. And so it, it goes through, just it just goes to prove that while each of these groups could be um, be different groups of people, whether it be Israelites or it be symbolic of something in the Roman Empire or just a witness of Scripture. The power, the beauty, and power of it is found in the very fact that uh, what 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 is it? What is the one word um, <laughs> that you you see this you. Uh, Cullen has used this in this class before. Uh, you see this, you begin to see this pattern or this pericope yes. of, of how this this state of worship is not only carried over with just the specific group of people who have been given honor and been given recognition within their own tribes and, and priesthood, but God brings it down to just the normal people as well. Yes, he makes this... Um... You know, this distinction, you know, there's the elders who are worshiping, but it's, it, it goes out. Right. Just as he says, it continually goes out from, right. it's not just these four living creatures, it's not, not just the elders, it's not just those who are in heaven, it is the entirety of the universe who is called and who is able to come to worship the Lord. Right, and, the, and that's, you look at this too, when, um, when the 144,000 come into play later on in Revelation, and it says all the tribes and all the different tongues and all these different things have all come together now in one place to battle with, with Jesus who has, who has won everything for us as well. Yes. Um, 
yes, through throughout it all, like we we see the the multitude after the you know the one hundred forty four thousand coming to the Lord, and then we see this great multitude. Absolutely, it is. There is there's no specific group. It is just the great multitude. Um, so yeah. Absolutely. Um, what would you say here in this while while having this discussion here today? Um, what what is the significance? And I, I really feel that you you have an answer for this as well. And this is a question I want to ask you today. But when when John writes who was and is and is to come, what do you what do you believe he's referring to there in that moment? Um. Well, this is so. This isn't the first time we're seeing. You know, this who was and is and is. Yeah, because Isaiah see. says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. His, the whole earth is full of his glory. Yes, but we also see it in this with this intratextual. We see it in Revelation 1, 1 and 8. Um, you know, saying, and this is the Lord saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So this isn't just the... The four living creatures, the angels, or the elders, calling, saying like the Lord who was and is, to, is who was and is and is to come. This is the Lord proclaiming it for Himself. Right. Um, for me, I believe personally that this is, this is the Lord, the Lord, and you know the creatures calling to, calling to God everything that He has done, um, throughout. Um, you know, we learn that. Uh, that the Lord has revealed himself in three ways, that the Lord has revealed himself as cre- creator in mm-hmm. the beginning, in the Old Testament. He has revealed himself as as the Son, right. and as Jesus in the cross. But then he's also re- uh, revealed himself as the Holy Spirit. Right. Um, and this is all of him. Right. Um, and him dwells all the fullness yeah, of Yeah, and in him but... dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Um and I believe that this is a call to who he is and what he has done. Right. That he was, that he he is an eternal being, right. that he will always be there, who is, who is continually, and who is to come. That is a call to what will be the conclusion of Revelation when he comes down, you know, when they start say, um, the the fullness of the kingdom has now come. Right. It's... Like that is a call to, to the Lord coming down and taking His church, not just the church, but taking all of the earth and everyone therein, to be with Him. Absolutely, and I love the next part. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne, and worship Him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, "Worthy are You, O Lord." God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things back to what you just said earlier. Yes. It's a callback because Jesus under has, has understood from the very beginning of time who he was. Mm-hmm. Je- Jesus is the name which has been given above all names, which we just talked about earlier. Right. And what is amazing here in this moment is that Jesus is receiving the glory because beforehand, what did, what did he tell his apostles in John's gospel? Um, in John 14, he said, 
or, or I'm sorry, in John 7, he says, on that, great, on that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out and said, and if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Right. He who believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow, or out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, Right. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So what is taking place in this moment is while John is not being very specific by mentioning the name of Jesus, you notice over and over this pattern, as we just talked about earlier with Kester, Kester's model of, of John's gives, gives a, a lot of details here, and then he gives just a little bit more detail. And totally in the end, you, you, we as believers recognize here that this is Jesus already, right. but ultimately in the end, that ultimately in the end, it, this academic discussion here is really for those who are trying to fully understand how revelation is and how right. to interpret revelation. Because we, we, we see it, some people see it as, as a prophetic book. Some people see it as a symbolic book. Some see it as historical. Some see it, take, take it literally. But we, we understand that John is writing an apocalypse here. Yes. And while this is very much so apocalyptic literature, not everything was meant to be taken literally. Yeah. It was meant to be understood symbolically. And that's where we have to understand and take time, like we're doing now, to understand the context in which John was writing to his readers. Right. And kind of calling back to what you said, not, not necessarily taking everything as... Um, as literal right. throughout Revelation. Oh, what is that word that I'm looking for? Is it dispensationalism? Right, yes, absolutely. Um, with, you know, people going into Revelation and thinking that they can look at the Bible, they can point at a verse and be like, ah, yes, this is this happened on July 19th of whatever. Right. Like, they try to create a timeline of the end of all times. Uh, something that, uh, I believe it was Kester who also has pointed it out, and uh, Peter Wright has also pointed this out, is that throughout it all, throughout all of Revelation, these are very real events that were that are happening, you know, in our time, you know, war, famine, sickness. Um, but they also happened in his own time. Right, absolutely. Um, it's this, it's again this whole call to, Going back and fixing your eyes on Jesus, saying that throughout everything, even though everything's happening, it's it's taking away those kind of securities that we have. Right. And going and looking back and to so, God. And so just for those who are listening in and you have no idea what dispensationalism <laughs> is, um, it's the belief that God started a new covenant every time with each of the patriarchs and so on and so forth. But... I, I would be in agreement with Peter here, um, and I believe Anna would as well, yeah. where we would both say we're progressive dispensationalists in the sense of that God made one covenant with man, which is found in Genesis, and he says out of the seed of the woman would come the Savior of the world. And that, that's, not, that's not, we know that from understanding the rest of the Bible, but that's Revelation 3.18, and um, I'm sorry, Revelation uh 315, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. You desire, your desire shall, not, shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you, so on and so forth. And this is really just a callback to 
to the prophecy of Jesus going to be coming later on because as Revelation uh, 18.3, I believe it is, would say, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of yes. the world. And so all of that to say this, that that God has the, the beauty of what is taking place here in Revelation 4 is so powerful because God has kept this one promise yeah. from the very beginning of Genesis. And we are seeing the fulfill we saw we seen the fulfillment of it through the gospels and and <clears throat> the continuation of it through the, the teaching of the apostles and the teaching of the disciples in the book of Acts and even Paul's teaching and writing in the uh, the epistles and his writing to Timothy of uh, for all for all the different preachers that would come out of Paul's ministry, but the beauty of it all was that Jesus was culminating all of this, and the worship that was taking place was the elders and the four living creatures worshiping him for the promise that he made thousands of years beforehand. Right. And this is what John is seeing, and which we have talked about this entire time now. Yeah, it's, you know, John, he's, He's seeing not only he's seeing God the Creator, um, but not just that, but he's seeing he's seeing Jesus, and he's seeing that um, that beautiful oneness right, of absolutely. it all. Seeing like, um, and he already knew that, of course, but it's being able to see that, especially through the windows of heaven. Absolutely, is absolutely is it's just beautiful, um, you know. Something that, that I just kind of want to pull back to really quickly, you know, with, um, you know, verse 11 talking about, um, you know, the elders worshiping God as the creator, as the creator Absolutely. God. Um, you know, pulling back to Genesis 1 and 2, there's so much, like through, re, like through research, there's so much in the first few verses of Genesis 1 alone. Right. And you know that I remember when I met, met you for the first time, you wrote something in my Bible about the five different things like that were being said in the first verse of Absolutely. Genesis 1-1. One, one. Um, but the thing about the word, uh, so the word God yeah. uh, from in the Hebrew, um, it is, it's coming from a verb that means to fear. Right. And it's this God who's existed from all of eternity, who... He has no beginning. Has, has no, no beginning, end. no end. Um, and he is... Create, he has at one point, he has created time, he's created space, and he's, and he, has des, he deserves to be held in this reverence and this awe by these right. creatures. So we can understand where, uh, where the elders are coming from, but then also continuing on this, uh, the Hebrew verb for created. Um, right. You know, it said, in the beginning, God, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, it's a very special verb because it is, uh, one, it's used to describe, it's used only, sorry, uh, and this is coming from, uh, oh goodness, what is his name? Uh, John Jeske from People's Bible Commentary. Uh, one is described and is used only of God's activity. This very specific right. verse is used only of God's activity. And two, it actually expresses the origin of something extraordinary. And something unique. Right. So this is the first time. And it is and it is inferring that God has created everything. Everything that we know, right. you and I, uh, 
the dust of the earth, the oceans, the sky, he created it out of nothing. And he just said it with one word. He just yes. spoke and everything came into existence. Yes. And Jeske actually points out that there were four conditions that our world or our universe was in that he had to, that he came in and he modified during this creation week. And he modified formlessness, emptiness, darkness, and the deep. And it is, it is so crazy just this, he's created, he's taken all this emptiness and all this darkness. Absolutely. And created everything that we know. Um, and he tells us seven times throughout just this first chapter that everything that he created was perfect. Absolutely. Wow, that's so good. Anna, that is so good. Wow. I, there was a quote I heard just the other day. And this is, this, is where I, this is the quote I want to take to close out our episode here. It states that the greatest opportunities or, or circumstances are always preceded by the belief that someone has in your ability to achieve something great. Wow. And so we look in our word and our and our Bible says now faith is the substance of things hoped for things, and the evidence of things, things not, not seen. seen. And what I really believe is happening here in this in this moment of worship is these elders are finally being able to have the closure in their minds that I have I have been believed in for my entire life now by the man who was slain on a cross for my sin, for my iniquity, for my, for my sickness. I love the verse in Revelation where it talks about it. He'll wipe away every tear from our eye because we'll never have to cry again. We'll never have to, we'll never have to worry about whether we have to pay a bill again or not. <laughs> <Right>. <clears throat> but it's just this continual cycle of us getting to worship God for who he is. Yes. And it's a beautiful thing. It's an absolutely beautiful thing. Sister Anna, thank you so much for joining me today here on the podcast. It has been such an honor to have you. Um, I've been blessed today by what you have said. Uh, Thank you so much for listening today as well. Um, We honor each and every one of you for your commitment to listening. But I also thank God for the commitment to being academic scholars of the Word of God as well. I know this is our first kind of episode where we're doing this, having a really academic discussion, bringing in commentary, bringing in different discussions of different scholars within the world of Christendom. But I'm really thankful for the presence of the Lord that is here as well today. And so, Sister Anna, before we end this episode, would you close us in prayer? Of course. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I am so thankful, God, that we get to be here, Lord, that we get to speak about your word, Lord, in an academic way, God, in a spiritual way. No matter what we do, God, whenever we speak of you, whenever we talk of your word, God, I'm thankful that your presence comes in, that you are, that you come near even at the whisper of your name, God. Jesus, I pray over every single uh, listener right now, Jesus, that as they're listening, God, that that they would be compelled, Jesus, to go into the Word, to go into the book of Revelation, God, on their own, and to begin to study it out, Father. I know that this 
that this book can sometimes be scary, can sometimes be daunting, but I pray, God, that this would unlock something in each and every listener, God, Jesus, that they would be able to go and see your word and see that this is pointing all back to you and they'd be able to see you, God, as this God of love, Lord. I pray that as, we go, as they go on their day, Father, that you would continue to guide them and lead them in their study and lead them, Jesus, to those that they can disciple and bring into your word, God. I thank you, Lord, for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.